You know when your mojo is working, you feel like anything is possible. There's a spring in your step, your thoughts are clear, and well, you've just got the vibe. If you're looking for that vibe, or if you just want to keep it, you've come to the right station. Welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. I got my mojo working, but it just won't work on you. Hey everybody and welcome to this week's edition of the Mojo Radio Show. Thank you for hitting the download button. You had a choice of lots and lots of podcasts to listen to. You chose our little show, the Mojo Radio Show. We appreciate you being with us today, no matter where you are in the world. And what's interesting is that although we're based in Sydney here in Australia, we've got a big audience right around the world in United Kingdom, the US is a big market for us. We've also got people in uh, Eastern Europe listening to us, South Africa, New Zealand, Asia, Germany. There's a lot of people in Germany, a lot of our German friends, even in China, surprisingly, and Canada and France. So we're humbled by the fact that this has now got an audience around the world. So no matter where you are, guys, and we mean anybody who's got their headphones on, if you're in your truck, in your ute, in your car, on the way to work, and you listen to the show, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. It means a lot to us. The man behind the big red bus with the Velua seat covers, the drives, the whole thing, holds it together. He's the blue tack. He's the aquadeer of the Mojo Radio Show. Welcome, Robbo. Better off behind the big red bus than in front of it, let's be honest. <laughs> yes, sir. Now, um, mate, fill us in. What, what, what happened on the weekend? Did you get up to much? Yeah, I had a really nice weekend, actually. We uh, wandered down to the local growers markets, which um, inspired me for a little piece I actually wanted to talk about this morning. Mm. As you know, throwback. Um, yeah, a bit of a throwback. As you know, I, I suffer from Crohn's, which is long story short, is basically a gut that doesn't work properly um, for various mm. reasons. Back in episode seven, we discussed the health benefits of smoothies and the effects that that might have on my Crohn's. Um, and since that time, you know, I think we've discussed it on the show before. I have been doing that every morning: um, smoothies with kale and um, some spinach and apple and honey and banana and all the the good stuff that we've spoken about. But um, but the point I wanted to make was that. Um, even though that you know, I've, I've discovered the, that Smithy is so right when he talks about that sort of stuff. But um, also, just the visit to the growers' markets on the weekend. You know, the fresh produce, the, the the local, my local markets. You can't sell there unless you are a primary producer. You can't on sell other people's product. And just the freshness of the apples and the spinach and, geez, I bought milk with cream on top. You know, for the first time yeah. in I don't know how long, yeah. Um, yeah. and the meat that's not that vibrant red color that's such so fake when it comes to your meat, you know, and all that sort of stuff. It's just incredible the difference that it makes. And I'll tell you what, spinning up my smoothie this morning and um, that first sip, if the increase in health benefits e- equal the increase in flavor and taste, I'm doing pretty well. Well, that's the thing. The other thing with with farmers markets and growers markets is that you have to be very careful when you're going up to a stand now. On the weekend, we did our local markets and we do pasture-raised, pasture-finished, grass-fed, grass-finished, whatever you want to call it, beef. No pesticides, no herbicides, no nothing touches our pastures. It's the way Mother Nature intended it, clean and simple. Mm. And anybody could walk up to our stand where we're selling our sausages, meat. We even did prime cuts on the weekend. We've got a barbecue going. They can buy a a grass-fed sausage on a baguette and... What I love about it is that anybody can drill me on any part of the process Mm. and we can look them in the eye and tell them what's going on. And I was talking to a guy on the weekend about markets and we were discussing it, the fact that there are some times when you go to a grower's market in a particular region and it might be the dead of winter, it's minus two degrees and there's a guy selling capsicum. Mm. Now, if you know the growing seasons and what's in season, you'll know that in the middle, dead set in the middle of winter, you can't grow capsicum, you can't grow tomatoes, you can't grow cucumbers. That's where these growers markets, we have to be very careful as consumers. When we go to these markets, you can look the actual grower in the eye and find out where was this planted, where was this raised and how were you doing it? Because today, the terminology, and there's so many great marketers out there, we're being told all these stories, but it actually isn't true to what is supposed to be on yeah. the, do you know what I mean? Like it's, it is important for us to be educated enough to go and be able to drill the person behind the stand to say, where is this honey from? What sort of honeys? How far is this, has this traveled? Because there are a lot of people who just see markets now as another outlet. 
And I don't think it's stringent enough in terms of the operation of some of these markets with who slips through. But if you're aware of your seasonality and you can have that conversation, you get great taste, better nutritional density, you know where it comes from, you're protecting yourself from all the pesticides and herbicides and everything else that go, all the other sides that go yes. into your food. So Exactly. Um, yeah, no. That's a good one, mate. Yeah, no, it was good. I really, and it will also, besides that, it's just a fun day out or a fun morning out too. But the smoothie thing has had a big effect on your Crohn's too, hasn't it? The smoothie thing has, I'll be honest, and I'm not being stupid here, the smoothie thing's actually changed my life. It really yeah. has. And, and I know you've noticed the difference, you know, since I've been doing it because, you know, as we obviously spend a bit of time together doing this. And um, yeah, it really has. It's really changed a whole lot of things about the way my, I deal with my disease. Absolutely. So, um, so yeah, it's a big thing. And I deal with people in different parts of the world doing the Mojo One to One. We talk on Skype each month, and we discuss their world and stuff. In the, it's a, basically it's the show, but done face to face with somebody via Skype or the telephone. And mm-hmm. my first question always for people when they want to make substantial changes in their world and really get their mojo working is, "What did you have for breakfast this morning?" And it, to me, it all starts with breakfast. That sets up your day. Mm. And uh, I think it's great. And yes, it has made a massive difference to, um, to I think, every, every part of your world, which I think is a great thing. So a big shout out to Smithy, Absolutely. episode seven. I need to send him a bottle of wine to say thanks. <laughs> that gluten-free wine. <laughs> that gluten-free wine, that's right. <laughs> yeah, now, Smithy, um, I'm sending you a big bottle of gluten-free kombucha <laughs> to say thank you, buddy. <laughs> and maybe when he gets it, we could go up and take a selfie with him. Yeah, now I've got a story for you on selfies. Funnily that, isn't it really? Yeah, I said you won't. Gary's 20 cents worth. Now, here's a, here's a cracker for you, uh, and I will put this in the show notes because it was a story in the Daily Mail Australia. Mm. The headline is how selfies are damaging your skin. So a blogger, uh, a young lady, she's 26 years old, she takes 50 selfies a day. 50? Five zero. 50 selfies a day. She lives in London and she is a lifestyle blogger. Of course she is. So she is posting these photos because it's part of her lifestyle on her blog and on Insta. Mm. So she started noticing that she was starting to get freckles and blemishes and wrinkles on her face. Now, HEV light or high energy visible light is the blue light that's emitted by devices like phones and laptops and tablets and so on. And a lot of the biohackers, the people hacking wellness today are saying that this blue light uh, in fact, even Anna Devena, who was a guest on our show talking about sleep, was saying the blue light can certainly interrupt your sleeping patterns because it makes your circadian rhythms go out of whack and mm. you think it's still daylight when it's dark and you should be going to sleep. So mm. there's a lot, a lot being spoken about this blue light or this HEV light. So this lady was concerned about what was happening with this with her skin because of the blemishes and what she was noticing. And she went to see a dermatologist or an expert at a skin clinic, a guy called Dr. Simon Zokola. And he then ran some tests, both internal and external to the skin. Hmm. And he said, in fact, that it was causing damage and there was damage on the outside of her skin that she could physically see. Hmm. Hmm. Um, But there's also a lot of damage under the skin that we can't see with the naked eye, but hasn't presented itself yet. So the lesson from this story, the couple of lessons from the story, the first thing is, now 50s extreme, don't get me wrong, Hmm. but... We do, we do need to be very careful of what this blue light is doing to us, particularly at night when we are staring at screens last thing before we go to bed. We wake up in the morning, first thing we do is stick our faces in the screen. We're in our screen all day long. They're saying that the average American spends almost five hours a day checking emails. So imagine how many times we go to our phone during the day. That light is damaging our skin. Mm-hmm. Now, this doctor recommended vitamin A creams and antioxidant creams, everything else. I mean, <laughs> of course he did, the band The thing he didn't recommend was... <laughs> Don't do it. Ixnade yeah, the selfie. <laughs> That's not an option. Uh, but the other thing, I, I found the other thing interesting out of the story, and it's, it's kind of an angle I hadn't really thought about. This girl mm. said, I, I could not go without taking selfies. I can't stop oh, doing it. That's like crazy, that's, that's just not going to happen, right? 
However, the other part of it, which is quite interesting, is she said that it's a way for her to express her creativity because she takes a photo mm. and then she can then play with the look and the, the tones and she can, she can play with the textures of it, the filters, mm. and she can crop and edit. So in a way, it is kind of photography if you go down that extent and you mm. can play with it in mm. terms of creative sense. Um, and she said as a, she's only five foot two and a half, and the invention of the selfie has enabled her to be the model she's always wanted to be. So right, right. I can kind of see that part of it. But yeah. the other part of it is, man, if you're spending so much time editing how good you look to make yourself look great in the face of the rest of the world and it's damaging your skin, you're going to have some serious thought about that. So Absolutely. I'll post a story. Folks, take it for what it's worth. I just found this headline caught my attention. I'm not a person who is loving selfies and stuff. I think we're way too involved. It's very self-indulgent. However, on the other side of it, photography and the whole thing is great for the creative spirit. So, you know what? We're probably going to get mail on that. (laughs) I'm sure we will. (laughs) Let me me just throw this in here too, just quickly. I noticed on the weekend I was reading about the latest um, uh, iPhone software update. Um, And Apple have included a, a a program called Night Shift, yeah. Um, which you find in your preferences, which actually changes the colour of your screen um, yeah. to reflect the time of day. So at night, it's a bit warmer um, yeah. to get you into that more calm state. So it's interesting that even the you know the big um, companies are actually recognising this and, and moving on it. Well, this is going to become a bigger issue. There's no doubt about it. And the biohackers are normally the front of the wave, like before the wave hits, before it becomes commercial. There mm. are guys who wear these special glasses, you know, like a set of sunglasses all day long looking at the computer because it blocks out the blue light. Yeah. Uh, there are people who recommend if you're going to read your Kindle at nighttime, turn the background to black mm. so that you don't have this glowing light in your face while you're lying in bed or lying on the couch reading. I mean, it's great as you're reading and I think Kindles are fantastic, but it is, there's a lot now being spoken about this blue light and how it's messing up our sleep. And mm. really the number of people who suffer from sleep issues and it's the number one health thing we can do to look after ourselves. So um, mm. I think there's a lot to look into this story. Blue light, you're going to hear more about it. Selfies, <laughs> the creativity. We less about them. <laughs> We're going to uh, we'll leave that out there for you to be the judge, folks. But um, that's my uh, that's my take on it all. Mm. The Mojo Radio Show. We're going to have a bit of an Aussie flavour in this week's interview, aren't we? Really? Well, it's out the back of the Australian cricket season, and mm. for our international guests that I mentioned, who are from all over Europe and um, parts of the United States, and some countries who may not be familiar with. Uh, a great Australian pastime or sport, which is cricket. Mm. Our guest today is a very well-recognised Australian representative cricketer. He's represented our country for many, many years. I think he played 16 seasons at the top level. Mm. He is one of our most successful domestic Australian bowlers of all time, taking more wickets than pretty much any other domestic cricketer in our country. So when we talk about bowlers, though, we're not talking about rolling them along the grass. No, we're not. We we need to... Probably preface this, don't we, for our international guests. The yeah. cricket is, how would you write it to... Look, um, for, um, for our US listeners, Casper, who we're going to talk to today, is probably our sort of Sandy Koufax. So, um, so yeah, like a, a, a pitcher. Yeah, like yeah. a pitcher. So, in mm. baseball, he'd be, he'd be your pitcher mm. and his job was to get our batsmen out. We mm. have two batsmen on the wicket at any given time. And I think rather than us do a pretty ordinary job of describing it. <laughs> it's probably best for people to go on and go to the interwebs and look up Absolutely. cricket. Absolutely, yeah. But Michael Kasperowitz, and the thing I love about Kasper is I did a speaking job with him not that long ago for a very, very successful medical company. And he spoke about leadership. He spoke about his philosophies on leadership. And he also is a very clever strategist and not just strategy in terms of the people he works with, but him individually as a person. He has strategized his career. He strategized his position in sport. And now after sport, he's one of our only ever Australian cricketers or sports people who's gone on to get an MBA. And his business now is like an intermediary between Australian business and business being done in India, which has come out the back of his sporting career. Very clever guy with some great information about how you can position yourself in the boardroom, position yourself as an individual or as an entrepreneur. So keep that in mind, folks, as we delve into not not just the game of cricket, but really life and business and strategizing your own personal world. So 
Michael Kasprowitz. Welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Oh, pleasure to be here. Can I just say it's uh, it's actually a personal pleasure to have you on the show, mate. No worries, Robbo. You're a massive fan of my rugby union days as a schoolboy, oh, obviously. I am, yeah. actually. That's right. No, I yeah. just, it's um. Look, I, I'm a bit of a sports sports tragic, to be honest with you. So any any kind of sportsman that makes it onto the show, I'd have to tip my hat to, especially at the level you guys make it to. Thanks. For, look, thanks for having me. Now, Michael, we're going to um, we are going to delve into your cricket career. Um, but just what I'd just like to share with our listeners is something that I'm, I'm sure not a lot of people would know right now is the work you are currently doing around the place. Can you just take us through sort of what you currently do on a day-to-day basis now? Look, what I did when I finished playing cricket and I was uh, one of those very fortunate people that was given the opportunity to live their dream. Um, I played cricket for Australia. Um, I also spent 19 years playing professional cricket. Finished playing cricket, 19 years of it, and went and did an MBA at the University of Queensland. Knowing fully well that there was no other Australian cricketer has gone through that process. Um, and in every way, just to, I guess, distinguish myself um, and separate myself from the crowd, if you like. But put myself in a position to, to help facilitate Australia, um, better understanding India and linking uh, into, you know, commercial um, or tangible commercial and personal relationships. So you played cricket at the top level for 19 years. At what point in that career, Michael, did you start to contemplate doing an MBA to know what was going to be next for you? And the reason I ask it because I think a lot of people are in careers right now, but they're not really sure what's next. And I think they struggle at what point to start to say, you know what, I'm looking for the next thing. Where did that happen for you in such a successful cricket career? The... Oh, I think I think it happened. Well, you, as I mentioned earlier, and use the the, the the phrase "I was living my dream," and and you'll worry about all the other stuff when you're finished. You know, this is this is too good. We're just um, yeah, loving every moment that you're putting on a baggy green cap, and and you know, in, in my instance, I was actually living life pretty much on the edge of that side. There was ten years where I was either just in or just out of that side and managed to get back into the team, I think it was 12 times um, in 12 years, which, which sorry, in 10 years, which gave me a really unique view of, of the team, um, of, 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 I guess, how successful teams operate, um, um, team culture and also the change. But, but it's kind of funny because I, I had, in that 10-year period uh, with those 12 times being picked or dropped or injured or, or finding a way back, um, I pretty much had more recalls than Daihatsu. So that, <laughs> what what I think that gave me is, I guess I was always looking for the next thing. Um, you know, I wasn't getting carried away that, that this was going to be my life for, for the rest of the days. I just managed to find a way back in and, and I guess reinvent myself. So, but the MBA for me was, it started off certificate uh, of uh, executive leadership which then after four subjects turned into a diploma of business administration, which when I finished the last four, converted into the Master of Business Administration. So, so look, it's like all these things, a bit like a game of cricket, maybe test cricket, not 2020, that um, it's a long process and you have to, yeah, I guess just apply yourself and um, you know, with all the distractions and um, oh, yeah, other elements around it. Um, you know, if that's what your, your goal is, then you, you just got to find a way to get there. Michael, can I take you back just to what you said a couple of minutes ago? You were talking about being in and out of the in, in and out of the Australian squad. Yep. Um, as we mentioned, I mean, I played rugby, but certainly never at a level that you've played cricket at. But, you know, it had my ups and downs in terms of in and out of teams. How, how do you use, how do you turn that disappointment around from being dropped from a team like that? How do you turn that around into a positive to, to give yourself the motivation to get back into the squad again? Look, there's, there's four and we'll, we'll strike them off, Gary, because we, we have spoken you, um, uh, through this, through this um, show. But, but the one that, that I keep coming back to and the biggest lesson I learned in, in all my years of cricket and, uh, and, and playing and, and being involved in, a, you know, in elite sporting teams was uh, I like to use the, the word possession or an ownership of your journey. Now, 
I reckon cricket, well, sport generally, but, but cricket more than most, you have a real opportunity to blame someone else for any, um, I suppose, any failure um, or when things don't work out exactly how you were hoping. Because in cricket, we have a lot of uh, external influences on your performance. You've got, of course, the, the weather. You know, it could rain. You've got uh, the, the conditions, the pitch. It might uh, turn a lot like it happens to be at the moment during a T20 World Cup. Or it might be a green seamer. It might even be the, you know, an umpire that uh, gets a decision wrong. But it, at the end of the day, this was the biggest lesson I learned, was that you have to be in control of your journey. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it, Gary? Because that certainly turns around into a business sort of skew, doesn't it? Well, it is. I mean, it's, it's the same deal. I mean, the people listening who may not be in a sports arena, um, it's, it's no different to losing a client or uh, you know, a big, big piece of business dropping out which can happen, you know, each day we, we lose a client or a big piece of business doesn't fall our way. So it's the same thing. And I find it interesting, Michael, you've reading, having spoken on a platform with you, heard you do your stuff, look at your, your profile um, on the interwebs. One thing that really strikes me is that, that taking ownership. And then the other word you used before which you don't often hear so much in a sporting sense, but you have done it successfully is reinvention. Tell me about your thinking process of how you went through that. You faced disappointment. You absolutely took, took um, responsibility for it and ownership. You came back into the team 11 or 12 times. But even with the NBA, India, your bowling, playing in India with your run-up, you you really seem to have been quite a creative guy who was able to reinvent himself. Was that always something that was conscious to you in, your, in the back of your mind or is it something that innately just happened? Yeah, no, no, it always was. Um, maybe stepping, stepping back a little bit, I, I do remember when I first played cricket for Australia. Um, this was the other sort of big lesson I, I had and it was relatively early. I played my, made my test debut. I had a couple of successful seasons for Queensland and lead the wickets um, in domestic cricket. Then I had the opportunity to play in the Australian team. I played, made, made my test debut at the Gabba, which is my home ground, being a Queenslander. And, and so this was the fairy tale. Here I was to play at the Gabba. Um, I didn't get a wicket. Um, I did manage to get, about, I think, about 16 runs. Um, but, you know, contributed and Australia won the test match. And I remember trying way too hard, just going out in that match and... And feeling, if you like, I was feeling unlucky because the, the umpire, you know, the, the LBW decision was given not out or the nick, uh, the little nick behind or the, you know, just fell short of the slips cordon or just, just it, was, it was incredible because it, I was sitting there and thinking, this isn't working. I'm trying way too hard. And I got back to really basically, I sat down, I, in my own mind, I thought, what was I doing before I played career for Australia? What was, how was my head? What was I thinking? What was, you know, and I just came back to the simple, simple three-letter word, three word of fun. By having fun, you take pressure away immediately. It doesn't actually exist um, because you're not even concerned about, about um, any pressures and all that. I'm just out there enjoying myself. That was one of the key lessons early. Um, but I'm using that as a, as a, a step up to... Coming back to perception, if you like, that's the other key word. And number two uh, lesson, starting with the letter P, um, in the perception, I understood how perception worked um, and around India particularly. Uh, when everyone else, when we went to India in 1998, I successfully, we lost the series. I got man of the match the last test match and I successfully lost eight and a half kilograms of body weight in three weeks. Um, playing cricket in 45 degrees, you know, body heat, um, back before sports science got a good hard grip of the game. And I, um, but I just used, used that as an opportunity. I thought, well, whilst everyone else in that dressing room was hating India, found it difficult, I thought, you know what, well, you hate it, I'm going to love it. Um, and really use that as an opportunity to separate myself um, in, in understanding India um, and presenting that. I think it's really interesting, Michael. I love that whole idea of if everybody else hates it, then you're going to love it and how that 
Because you really have developed the perception of being the subcontinent specialist. Like anywhere you read online or, you know, my dad was a, a Sheffield Shield umpire back in the day and he still talks about the fact that, you know, when they went to India, you were the man to throw the ball to. And you really have created that perception. Do you, do you still use that sort of mantra or thought that if the rest of the world hates this, there's an opportunity for you to love it. Do you use that in today's business world or your own personal life? Is that does it transpired into today? Well, I'm actually finding this quite therapeutic because I'm going to have to change my uh, marketing <laughs> of uh, <laughs> of my company Venture India because, um, and maybe because I've I've gone down the line of of uh, a little bit. I guess the the market in here is a little bit um, or maybe immature. Uh, on its take of India or the opportunity in India uh, in some ways. But but I have, in all honesty, I, I have. Um, and that's why, look, in all honesty, that's why I did the, in the MBA. Um, to give you, well, coming back to your last question a little bit, um, you know, the, the rebranding process. So I know, yeah, that, yeah, so it's a rebranding that, well, he's, oh, he's, he knows business because he's, you know, he's a cricketer. Yeah, great, awesome. But he can also, he, know, he understands business. Um, I like to sort of not play where others necessarily play because um, I just reckon there's more reward there. Because um, if you just follow the crowd and, you know, sit on the back of the bus and go for the ride, um, well, that's great. It, you know, you get there eventually, but... But sometimes, and I think that's for me, is, is looking at looking things differently um, and looking at other ways to, to solve an issue, to um, apply a solution. And that's where I, that's where I think it fits beautifully um, in India and all too naturally because India is not the same. It doesn't work on the same structures as the West. Um, the concept of time is different. They're culturally um, very status-orientated, very hierarchical. Um, and quite, and for a lot of Western companies that try to uh, implant their business structure and their um, processes in India, walk away shaking their head and talk about it being a you know it didn't work. You know the pro it didn't work for us. It, it's so powerful, Michael, and I'm, I'm not sure that people would get this or take this on board. But there aren't many sportsmen or business leaders that you could talk to who actually have reinvented themselves, strategically positioned themselves mm, to their yeah. advantage as a brand. Like when I have spent time with you and hear your story and look at the, 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 the materials that are online and so on, you really have strategically positioned yourself as a brand. And uh, I just hope everybody listens to this because what I'm getting is that regardless of whether you work in the finance department, whether you work in procurement, whether you're a sound engineer, whether you're a business leader of Fortune 500 company, each of us could take the learnings that you've been through and brand ourselves because the selectors at that time were your yeah. customer, your client. That, that was your target audience. And we all have that, whether it be a board, whether it be a PNC committee, whether it be a sporting team. I think it's really very powerful what you've outlined for us to take away for personal mm. accountability to to brand ourselves and um, yeah, I well, think it's great, mate. I really do. Yeah, thank you. And I guess it comes kind of oh, maybe naturally in some ways for when you're you, as a sportsman when you're out there you're competing. You're um, yeah, you you have to try and stand out. Um, you know, in amongst everyone else for you know, for, and that's possibly where the <laughs> The jewellery taps and the, the hair colour comes in. Um, <laughs> um, but there's other ways. And I think that um, one of the, the, the key for me has always been, look, sports sports and sportsmen, part of that uh, perception piece is that everyone looks at it and thinks that, you know, you, you live your life surrounded by cliches. Um, and you do. You, you hear it. You listen to it. Um, and that's where those lessons that I've, I've shared today aren't cliches. I wasn't sat down when I came as a 17-year-old schoolboy um, in a Australian, oh, sorry, Queensland dressing room with Alan Border in the room and Greg Ritchie and Carl Rackerman and Craig McDermott as, you know, mentors and their teammates. They didn't sit me down and say, listen, this is what you're going to learn 
you go and play for the next 19 years, these are the most important lessons that you can possibly take with you. No one did that. And so, and not in a bad way, it's just, it's just the way it rolls. And I guess business is the same. You have to find a mentor or someone that can that will share, well, knows you personally, but also can, can share with what you, you know, with what's going to suit you. Michael, I heard you speak about sledging and yeah. what, what I wrote in my journal was you said sledging is a way to get inside the mind of an opponent mm. and designed to have him or her doubt their skills. And yep. what I wrote down and wanted to ask you about was it, it, it came to mind to me that we also sledge ourselves pretty bad. Oh, and yeah. there's probably no sledging that anybody could do to you that we don't do to ourselves first. How did you... How did you handle your own internal sledge? So when you, when you were in that position where your own mind was sledging you and you had the elements of doubt, what, what was the Michael Kasperowitz approach to the internal sledge? Oh, look, you've got to shut it out. Um, you've got to stop. And as you said, we, we are, we, every person is the, the best sledger um, of, of themselves, without a doubt. When they're absolute... You got the title without, without, uh, <laughs> um, and and look, person personally, um, it was probably later on, um, and sitting down at the end of you know that whole experience of my first career, uh, of looking at those lessons, and I think what all sledging does is, I mean, and as you mentioned, is that all sledging is is getting you to doubt your skills, and that's where I think um, that's what pressure is. Pressure, all pressure is, is getting you to doubt your skills. Um, and you really, and that, that's that's the trick, I reckon, is like even for business, you know, with cash flow or throw a good juicy GFC in there, um, all of a sudden everyone was doubting their skills um, and then looking looking at other ways, looking at things that, that aren't there um, to try and change. Um, let's change the whole business structure. We have to. We've got to adapt. We've got to adjust. Um but when you're under pressure, um, it's funny. I think I'll use a cricket analogy here: is when when you when you're out of form as a as a batsman, say, um, you end up thinking too much about this end, about your own performance, and you start thinking as a batsman what they were doing when they were on fire, when it was all working out. Which end were you thinking about? Were you thinking about your end, or were you thinking about the other end where the ball comes from? And what happens there is that you end up thinking about the other end because when the ball comes to you, you're not even thinking about it. You're able just the body's in position; it hits it um, without any doubt. You're so clear in your mind. Actually, you're overly clear that you're not even thinking at all. It's just you're just instinctive. Um, but when you are under pressure, all of a sudden you start to doubt yourself that yeah, your technique's wrong, that your bat's going up the wrong angle, that your hands are not right. Same with bowling, that your action's wrong, we've got to change something at this end in order to compete at the other end, which is wrong. And I guess what the lesson I learned through all that was was in dealing with pressure, the best mechanism there or sledging is to shut it off. Stop, stop worrying about this end. Block it out and think about what you're doing well. It's a simplistic way to do it, um, but I've tried you know, implementing that as a, as a tool, a mechanism to deal with it. Um, and I think that's probably the, the the best way you can. That's gold, Robert. Absolute gold. Gold. Gold, gold, gold. There, there's, there's gold in that there cricket strip. Hey, um, <laughs> Michael, before we let you go, it would be remiss of us. We have a, a very strong audience in South Africa, a strong audience in England, um, the USA, all our friends in the USA, and, of course, here back home in Australia. But it would be remiss of us not to ask you some straight-up cricketing questions. So okay. this, is your, <laughs> this is your cricketing rapid fire, mate. This is um, some quick cool. questions that I'd be interested in knowing. As a, as a, as a cricket fan, since I was a, a whippersnipper, and, and for people around the world, um, the cricketing crowd you most enjoyed playing in front of? Um, you like your home grounds? Um, because it's familiar, but I particularly liked India. I love the yeah. energy, the energy of the people, um, regardless of which team. Now, 
the thing is because often um, they were even if even if they were still supporting the opposition and they were sledging you from the side, you couldn't quite understand them underneath uh, a big <laughs> smile and a moustache. So. <laughs> The cricket ground you'd love playing at? Oh, well, Gabba, but yeah. playing at Lords, um, the home of cricket yeah. uh, over yeah. in London, has to be um, certainly up there. Um, you know, just for, for the experience of all the great players before that have played there and the history. I think that's the one thing with uh, with sport and cricket and having the chance to recognise the history of the players before. Would that be true for most of the team, Michael, with the, the yeah. Lords is the, 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 the mecca? Um, yeah, I think so. Like, yeah. I think it, yeah, just for the, the sense of occasion too. Um, it's mm. so unique. Mm. Um, and with the history, yeah, absolutely. It's really interesting, Robbo, that I've done a number of speaking jobs at Lords. Oh, okay. Not on the ground, obviously, but in no. the pavilion, the, the pavilion opposite that mm. spaceship-like area that they have, Michael. And I That's must the say, media, even, yep. Yeah, opposite the media centre. And even as a punter who loves his cricket, just walking in, the ground has this, oh, it's yeah. just something, it just takes your breath mm. away. I can't even imagine yep. being chosen for your country to play there and even to get to bowl a ball would just be absolutely magic. But yep. as a ground, there is something about Lords. Yeah, well, 90,000 people of the MCG is pretty neat too. <laughs> Don't... Uh... <laughs> Michael, think back through your career. You took a lot of wickets. You are the, uh, I think, second second most successful bowler in Australian domestic cricket behind the great leggy Clary Grimmett. Is that right? Yeah, I think he was about Mike. 72 when he retired. No, but he's, <laughs> <laughs> through all the wickets you've taken in international cricket and domestic cricket in Australia, yep. what's the wicket you're most proud of taking? Oh, look... I think your, your your first test wicket um, ends up ends up really standing up um, as a as a moment. Um, yeah, but oh, look, yeah, I think I think there's a, there's a there's a real there's a curious mix between yeah, even your moments your your favourite best moments um, is a mix between you know, your best team moment and success. Um, and that was actually in India in 2004 when we beat India and changed how we played and it sort of adjusted our skills to suit those conditions as a bowling group, which uh, when you have a plan and we executed it perfectly, um, everyone in the contribution was was phenomenal, um, is is what stands out for a, a team performance. But, but even... Um, even as a individual performance, for me the most satisfying, without a doubt, was well that first test wicket because it gets the show going. But also um, was actually in 1998 in India, as I mentioned earlier, having lost eight and a half kilos of body weight, and just the, the I guess the, the strain and the stress and the challenge that that was, knowing that well look. There was never ever going to be another challenges like it. Um, that last test match in Bangalore, I ended up getting uh, five wickets in the second innings um, and managed to get Sachin Tendulkar out. Now, I got five wickets, got man of the match. We've won was the test. Was that the court and bold? Yep. Um, great wicket, great wicket. Yeah, but what happens there is that it was one of those moments where, oh, it, it's, it was just such a special moment going back to the dressing room. And the feeling, the actual, the feeling of just satisfaction was over, kind of overwhelming because you sat down fully exhausted, um, bowled a central position, I think, where we need 100 runs to win, which we, we did, um, and getting five wickets um, was just, was the most incredible personal feeling ever after what we'd been through, obviously, and, um, and it was kind of funny, really, because just before the test match, Dennis Lilly, the greatest fast bowling resource of all time, was walking across the Oval training and he happened to be in India at the time. And I said to him, I said, oh, look, is there something about um, Tendulkar, Sachin Tendulkar, the best cricketer in the world at the time that we were playing against who batted really well, is there something in his technique or that you've noticed that you think that we could target in, the, in this test match? Is there something you've noticed? And he kind of took a bit of a pause, he, he looked skyward, he sort of, oh, he sort of rubbed his, his, the edge of the corner of his mo a little bit, moustache, looked and he looked back at me and said, 
No, mate, just make sure you walk off with pride. <laughs> so, Words of wisdom. Exactly. That was before the test match. So as I said, the greatest fastball of all time, didn't even have a clue. I didn't have any ideas, I should say. So anyway, we... Um, so that, that's what even, I guess, uh, amplified the reason why it was so special. As a bowler, you've played against a lot of batsmen. Who was the most gifted batsman that you had the pleasure of bowling against? Like the person who just had that natural ability, or my dad, who umpired many years, said they just seemed to have all the time in the world to play a shot. Who was the most gifted that you played against? Well, Tendulkar in India. I, I played county cricket against Brian Lara, um, and he, he was too, but I didn't play a lot against Brian Lara, um, not for the Australian team. I didn't bowl too many times against him there. But but I think, um, you know, like Tendulkar, I think Lara looked like he was the most gifted because he was just a bit different in the yeah. way he played. And just his success was just phenomenal. But Tendulkar too because he just made it look so easy. He's only a small guy but just always balanced. Um when I say balance, his head was still and on those conditions um, ended up being just the most you know, phenomenal player uh, ever. We often talk about rituals as part of our day on the show. Michael, did you have a ritual or superstition that you went through each time you played from the dressing room or on the field? Like, were you a ritualised player? Well, you, you kind of got, yeah, you do get routines. I wouldn't call them uh, rituals. I guess I used to wear, you know, depending on, you know, like, it wasn't necessarily a left or a right shoe first, but probably got to a stage where you're just putting on your left shoe first. Um, I put my left pad on first too. I maybe should have changed that and had to go to the other <laughs> side. Anyway, um, <laughs> we, um, yeah, I, I was never that way, but it was classic being in a dressing room with people that were. Um, like your super highly structured people, it was, and that's the beauty of of, uh, of being in, in teams is that you get to you spend so much time with these people and with other your know, teammates that you you got to know the buttons to push um, <laughs> and also you know have ways to, to 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 drag them back if required as well. But there was those guys that you could even, you could they'd set their gear up. And there's a lot of gear when you're talking about a couple of pair of shoes and bats and pads and gear, all that and clothes, on on in a in a dressing room. Um, and come days two or three, you could actually go and even you could just swap a shoe with for certain players, or or just turn a shoe around the other way, um, and just walk in a dressing room just wind them up, and they would lose the plot. Really. <laughs> Oh, yeah. No lucky pair of socks or lucky pair of undies, Michael? No, no red uh, handkerchiefs <laughs> and left pockets either. Maybe <laughs> red handkerchiefs. I've still go. got my lucky pair of Gordon socks. I st- they still sit in, they still are both oh, in my do they? drawer. Yeah, yeah, they still hang out there. They didn't yeah. perish after all the years? No, and, well, huh? I don't wear them. They're, but they're, they're, we won right. the, I won the grand final in them and I just can't bring myself to throw them away, so I call them my lucky socks. Did you wash them? <laughs> yeah, I did wash them. I did oh, do good, that. Okay. Yeah. Just checking, just checking. <laughs> it was so. a good 20-odd years ago. <laughs> hey, I've got a couple of quick questions for you. Yep. The, fir- yeah. the first one would be, as a, as a parent and a coach of kids, um, I'm interested to know, although I coach a different sport, a completely different sport than you, if I walk down onto the training pitch tomorrow night, and I was talking to the kids and I know there are a couple of kids who take their rugby really seriously and do seriously aspire to play at the highest level. Skills aside, what do you think would be the best piece of advice I could give them to help them on their way to that goal? I actually coached my son's um, under six, sevens and eights. Um, he's under tens now. Um, yep. Rugby. Yep. Um, and so I was implementing these particular <laughs> Um, like I suppose, you know, lessons as well uh, mm-hmm. with them. And I just, and the one that right from the start, and I think we see this even at the most senior level in sport and certainly football these days, is that your best teams, um, um, if you like, or best, you know, I guess uh, the best foundation for any team, whether it be society or family, you know, is discipline. There's rules and there's consequences. And I just think that, um, and this is what I tried to do with these young fellas. As I told them straight, I said, look, we're, we're all teams, good teams, great teams of rules. Or I said, we got two, two rules, that's it. First rule is you have to listen. You have to listen to the coach um, when, or whoever's, you know, the adult who's speaking, who's running the show. Um, yep. Um, 
And if you don't listen, there's a consequence if you break the rules. The consequence is I'm going to send you, you've got to run around the goalposts and back. Um, number two rule, you've got to have fun. And this is the thing, I think, with especially boys, um, here's the example, is that show us where the boundaries are. Show me where I can play too. I'll, t- I'll keep going as far as I can until I'm more than happy to play inside whatever area you give me. But as soon as, you know, if, as soon as you sort of, there's no boundaries, I'm off. And it's hard to, hard to bring things back there. So I think, I think that's, that's kind of, that, that's, that's the first one. Once you get that in place, um, it's a whole lot easier. But I think fundamentally, kids, um, I know my kids, I know me personally, um, I didn't learn by someone telling me. I didn't learn by someone necessarily or reading about it. Um, I happen to be a visual kinesthetic learner, which I think all kids and certainly around sport, you learn by doing. Kinesthetic, you learn by doing. And so I think as a, as a lesson, and I think even in life for all of us, is that you, you, the more practice, the more you do an activity or you, you, you learn you learn by doing. So I guess that only leaves us with the big question, Gary. I think Michael's sufficiently warmed up, Robert. Do you I think he's ready uh, for it? <laughs> yeah. I think having operated at the elite level for 19 odd years, I think I'm fairly confident he can perceptually I'm feeling good. I think yeah. he can handle he's been through the pain <laughs> of the interview. Let me put it this way, do you reckon he can hit it for six? He can take ownership and I think he can deal with the pressure. Hit him with the big question, mate. Did I take the did I take the shine off the new ball as well? Oh, there you nice. go. I'm going to use that so, in another interview. Mate, throw this to him off the short run, Robbo. Off the short run, mate. You're sitting in, <laughs> mate. You're sitting in the sheds, ready to go out. And uh, you know the guy, the bloke who's in before you, has just just got out. You're walking out. You've got to make a certain amount of runs to save the team. What songs pumping in the headphones in the change room before you walk out onto the pitch to get your mojo going? Oh. What song? Well, it's got to have a, a good, dirty guitar sort of bass nice. behind I'm it. Already, yeah. all right, all right. Um, yeah, you're talking a language so far. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> dirty and guitar. Yeah, yeah. That's it's it's got to um, it's got to have that sort of uh, you know not so much build up, but something that immediately gets the, the you know me up and, and the energies. So, look, oh, so what the one song that I like and in a, in a bit of a theme, it's Pearl Jam is always, oh, always been. Sweet. Um, nice. Yeah. Um, a bit of Eddie Vedder. Nice. Yeah. favourites. The one the one that The one that used to always, you know, get me, I suppose, was Corduroy. <laughs> said that rearview mirror um, or even just in all honesty alive in that situation uh, just at the start of that that's got me pumping and that's got me um, you know, out in the front and, and trusting my skills right here. Um, <laughs> it's one of those um, It's one of those stand up on the chair and pump your arms in the air sort yeah. of deals, isn't it? It's a bit, of, like, it's a bit air, of air guitar. It's an air guitar. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll put it this way. And that, it's almost like the, the fairy tale because when you go out there and you score the runs, mm. you know, it's all timed and, and, and uh, the... And the sound technicians actually, uh, you know, put that that vision, your vision of you scoring those runs, yeah. with the with the um, yeah with, with the song ending with you uh, at the end of the song, hands above your head, and then it goes to the the credits. <laughs> so it has to. That's that's, that's the script. Well, there you go, mate, Gary. I think that one went over the ropes in, on the full for sure. Yeah, that's gone. That's yeah. how you can you can forget that one. It's out. It's out of the ground. Absolutely, mate, um, Michael. Where? For people to learn more about you, see your work, uh, delve into Venture India, where would you send people to, to connect with you? Look, I um, this is one of the things that I'd, I'd love to learn from you guys. Um, and being relatively new at this, um, you know, I'd, I'd love to engage a lot more and sort of uh, and share these lessons and my lessons um, in, you know, I guess to, to corporates, to individuals, to to, you know, I guess whoever wants to listen. Um, 
So yeah, I'm 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 open to um to anything. I actually have a Twitter uh, account at Casper K S P A three six nine or straight through LinkedIn. Um, Michael Kasprovich is my uh, is my name and and so we, yeah, I'd 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 love to engage and you know and once again it's like it's kind of therapeutic in. Uh, as well, when you're talking to people and, and visiting a lot of these things myself, um, you know, putting myself back on track. So I thank you. Well, Michael, it's been a real pleasure having you on the program and to to have been able to meet you recently. And um, mm. Robert, my dad umpired Casper many years ago uh, as a young cricketer. And even before I'd made contact with Michael, my dad spoke very highly and said that he was one of the great gentlemen of the game where he was one of the few guys that actually appreciated having his, his hat or his sunglasses handed back to him. But he always described Michael as a very smart bowler. And, um, mate, I think now that we've met you and spoken to you and, and heard your lessons and how you portray them, um, I think Dad was spot on. And actually, I saw him only last week in Brisbane and said we were going to try to get you on the show and uh, he remembered you fondly, mate. So um, oh, good. thank you. Excellent. Thank you very much for being on the program. It's been uh, a real treat hooking up with you again, mate, and um, hope we can keep in touch. Absolutely. Thanks, Gary. Thanks, uh, thanks, Robbo. Thanks, mate. That was awesome. Getting your mojo working. This is the Mojo Radio Show. So, mate, off the back of that interview, I reckon there's only one thing we could play, and that would be this, right? Yes, Ian. Well, uh, I was just thinking to myself, when some big Kiwi prick gets a four from a snick, that's Ferrari. <laughs> And he moves on to 193. And New Zealand now, two for 456. <laughs> <laughs> and for our international guests who may be not familiar with Richie Benno, Richie Benno was one of our greatest ever sporting commentators in our country. And mm. I think it's fair to say that Richie Benno was synonymous with summer in Australia and mm. synonymous with cricket in mm. summer in, in, in Australia. And... That is an impersonation by one of our biggest ever selling comedians, mm. the 12th man who is Billy Birmingham impersonating our own Richie Benno. And I think for our American listeners, it's, he's probably the Howard Cosell of commentary in Australia yeah. to do with cricket. And uh, he died not that long ago. We sadly miss him and mm. his voice is sadly missed on cricket commentary around our country every summer. So uh, RIP, Richie. Bit of a sad 12 months for um, for, for sport commentary in, in Australia with the passing of Richie just recently and also the news that um, actually one of our guests on the Mojo Show, Ray Warren, this will be his final year of calling the footy too. Yeah, that's, uh, that is. And it's funny because you become so familiar with the vision and the sound of the, vo- the comment. It just doesn't seem it's like Gordon Bray with Rugby Union. Yes. It's like Bruce McAvaney at the Olympics or at the AFL. There are mm. some voices which just become synonymous. Well, Johnny Tapp with horse racing, like they just become synonymous. And yeah, when, when someone else steps in after all those years and that the person they're, st- they're stepping in for has done such a good job, mm. it leaves a big hole in the commentary, doesn't it? It does like indeed. It? I can't imagine uh, turning on the State of Origin next year and not hearing Rabs calling it. I think that'll be difficult. Yeah, that's true. Anyway. That's very, very true. So listen, from a sporting story, should we move on to a music story? We well, are, yeah, yes. I've got a bit of a lesson of rock this got week. Got of rock. Thank you for this chance to kick ass. The Mojo Radio Show's Lessons in Rock. Now, um, uh, a few months ago, we were all saddened to hear about the loss of David Bowie and there's been a lot said about his career and his achievements. But I thought it would be interesting to take a look at the things that he actually turned down along okay. the way and, and how that affected his career. Like, for example, did you know that he turned down collaborations with Dave Grohl and Coldplay? Really? Um, both of them approached him and asked him if he recorded them. In fact, he told Coldplay, it's not a very good song, is it? Gutsy. <laughs> 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 Brutally honest. <laughs> yeah, gutsy. Yeah, he also turned down countless requests to host um, award nights. And also, in the majority of times when he was presented awards, he actually didn't turn up. He had other people like, accept them on his behalf. So, because um, yeah, it right. wasn't something that he believed in. Um, he twice turned down a knighthood. Um, 
once for services to music and again later in his life he was offered a knighthood for a major contribution to British life, both of which he turned down, said that it wasn't something that he'd ever been interested in or nothing that he'd been working towards and so he wasn't interested. Um, some other quick ones included, uh, he turned down a, a guest spot on Doctor Who. He turned down a request to produce the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Um, he turned down the role of Max Zorin in the Bond film A View to a Kill, saying that he didn't want to spend five months of his life watching his stunt double falling off a cliff. So, mm. so there you go. That's just a few big ones. There was a whole bunch of others that I came across. But um, for me, it says a lot about the man, really, and, and about his career that, you know, he didn't believe in what he was being asked to do or he wasn't interested in spending the time to do it. So instead of sort of saying, oh, well, I'll take the cash and run, he actually had the, um, he had the balls to say, well, you know, I'm not really interested. Thanks for the offer, though. Well, it's, it's what you say no to help define what you say yes to. Mm. And in this day and age, we tend to say yes to too much. And any performance or productivity person, one of their first rules becoming more efficient more productive, having your mojo working, being happier is just learn to say no. Mm. Mm. And we tend to have a hard time saying no nicely. And knowing what you stand for, knowing what your own dreams are and knowing your own standards then allows you, if you have the courage, to then say no. And particularly in business, if you take out the personal part of, there's a personal part of what Bowie had, but the other business part, which is his art, Mm. Knowing what to say no to helps define what you say yes to. And yeah. he was very, very strong on his own creative drive. Some people liked his stuff, some people didn't. Some of his stuff in his later career alienated people, some didn't. But mm. there's no doubt the guy made a mark in fashion, art, music, creativity. And even My Little Girl is learning about David Bowie in year five at school. Oh, really? <laughs> and some of the, just, it's so cool because we'll get in the car to come home from school and she'll put on, um, she'll put on Golden Years or she'll put on his latest album, Black Star, and talk about him and how he had these different personas and mm. how people weren't really into him, and, but he was true to himself. And I, I think, you know, the impact that he's having, uh, and a lot of it comes down to the fact of what he said no to rather than just being another commercial person who just wanted to sell albums. So um, mm -hmm. what are so we going to play out with? I think we should play out with this, don't you? Right.
Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peter speaking. See you next time.